The Global Sport Matters podcast is presented by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment, a division of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management dedicated to serving the unique and sophisticated needs of professional athletes and entertainers. This is Sport Matters with Kenneth Shropshire and Bill Roden. From academia to media, Ken and Bill explore the edges of sport, unpacking race and culture beyond the game. Welcome to the Sport Matters Podcast. I'm Ken Shropshire, the CEO of the Global Sport Institute. I am here today with one regular guest and, and one great guest. And, and we're going to talk about um, my book, uh, sheepishly, I'll say, in black and white race and sports in America, 25 years later. And we had a great conversation in our last session with Ilan Grunwald, who's the athletic director equivalent at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. Um, so we focused a lot on Africa. Uh, today, our, our, our great guest, Pierre Poir, who is the executive director of the FAIR Network, and they work with UEFA and FIFA as part of their uh, anti-discrimination work. And he's much broader than that as well. We'll hear about some of that today, but largely to look at these issues uh, in England and, and throughout Europe. To lead us in this conversation, I will turn it over to my great colleague, Dr. Scott Brooks. It's great being with you guys again. And, you know, I'm really excited about having this conversation. You know, as we continue to talk about In Black and White 25 years after Ken first started this book, you know, we really wanted to take a look and and understand what is going on with sport. Are we still in the same place when we're looking at this now? We are also talking about gender, sex, sexualities, you know, abilities. We're talking about much broader things. But Ken's book was really focused on leadership. So thinking about ownership, thinking about the front offices, and also thinking about you know, coaching opportunities or leading actual sport teams. So want to start there, uh, PR. You know, one of the things that really comes to mind for me, the very first question is, when you're thinking about our issues, you know, the, the race, the culture, gender, when you're thinking about these different issues, how far have we gotten? And, you know, you're, you're, you really take a lot of heat at times for being bold and making the statements that are, that are factual based on evidence that you, you all gather there at Fairnet. But give us just a little bit of state of affairs and, and you can start wherever you feel most comfortable, but give us the state of affairs. Yeah, um, thanks, Scott. And hi, hi, Ken. It's great to be with you guys. And congratulations on on 25 years of this amazing book, this sort of uh, agenda-setting book that, that has been so influential for so many people. I know I've seen it referenced so many times that uh, it almost seems like a dream talking about it. So uh, it's great to be here. Um, Scott, I, I think that um, if we, we, in many ways, we need to sort of break down each of, of the sort of issues that go into making the broader anti-discrimination, uh, non-discrimination DNI um, sort of cluster. Um, and on race, let, let me take that first because that's my starting point. Uh, race, um, you know, we, we are in a really interesting position here in Europe because you can split Europe um, four ways, really. You know, you have the, the, the east, west, south, north. And I would say that the Western Europeans and the Scandinavians uh, are beginning to, to recognize really the importance of race in our societies, understanding who we are, what we are, what we could be in the future. And then also understanding the role that sport 
can play in reflecting that future, but also the way in which sport has been a mechanism for exclusion and oppression. Um, in the East and the South, um, things are, are slightly different. The South is, is, is also rapidly becoming more diverse, particularly places like Italy, like Italy, which are, you know, their reality is other, other sort of migrant boats coming up from North Africa, uh, from the Arab world, bringing in refugees into Europe, right, uh, as a result of war, climate change, poverty. Um, but gener in general terms, um, those societies historically have seen themselves as very monocultural. Um, you know, if you look at the East and you see what's happening right now in the East of Europe with the Russian attack on Ukraine, you know, Russia and Ukraine are a core part of uh, European, the European football space. So these are places that we've worked in. Uh, FIFA had a World Cup there in 2018, the last World Cup in Russia. Um, Ukraine hosted a major tournament with the European Championships back in 2012. Um, and, and so you can really see that the, just the dynamics there and some of the things that have been happening with African and Indian migrants leaving Ukraine and the way they're being received, uh, the way they're being pushed to the back of the queue physically to get on the trains uh, out of Ukraine in this emergency situation. And then just generally the other issues that Eastern Europe is, is dealing with. So that, that's the way I see Europe in those, in those four quarters. Um, and, and I guess the most interesting progress that we can relate to is in Western Europe and Scandinavia. A lot of countries now that the Dutch, um, the British, the UK as a whole, the French, you know, um, are coming to terms with colonial legacies very slowly, but very surely. We're beginning to look at many of those issues that, that you in the US have been working on for a long time. We're beginning to ask questions about the lack of diversity in leadership we're beginning to uh, try to empower athletes to, to, to be the carriers of, of positive messages. Uh, and I think we should discuss that more because there's been a, a big sea change in that in the last two years. And then on gender, I, I, I think that um, it's a more, seen as a more mainstream issue for Europeans. You know, people recognize that women's football, for example, is an upward curve. It's globally a huge sport. Probably people say that it's the biggest... Uh, uh, well, it's the, it's, it's, it's the, 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 the team sport with most growth in the world. Um, but, but there, again, you know, we, we don't reflect, in sport, we don't reflect uh, gender equality within leadership in a way in which we do see in other sectors. You know, so you can go into sports spaces and there's an invisibility of women that, that you question why it's there. It, you know, we're, we're decades behind uh, other parts of society. And then on the LGBTIQ rights, as in America, you know, the, the, the queer community have been uh, are, are subject to a culture war, right? There are states in the European Union um, who have given guarantees of um, freedom of expression, given guarantees on freedom um, or, or for, or for people to live, regardless of, of, of their background. And those states through their leadership are waging culture wars with against the LGBTIQ community. Some of the legislation being passed there, I think you're recognizing now in, in states such as Texas. Um, that's been a part of the picture here for in Europe for, for quite a long time. So it's a very mixed picture. Um, sometimes I would say to bring all the strands together, sometimes we don't do enough to work on intersectionalities. Uh, sometimes we don't give each other enough support. Um, but in general terms, you know, there, there, there are clear agendas and focus on each of those areas. Um, and there are some, some amazing organizations and individuals giving leadership as well. 
So sometimes it's really interesting when, when, when I compare and talk to American colleagues about the picture, particularly on race uh, and gender. And, and they sometimes think that we're coming at it from a perspective which is fresh and new and therefore interesting and are able to make progress. And others can't believe that, that we're stuck uh, where we're stuck uh, and, and feel that we are a long way behind some of the debates in the U.S. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a great overview, great overview in terms and gives us a different way of thinking about it. You know, often we lump Europe together and what you've done is help us to understand that they that they're very different kind of sectors of, of Europe when we're thinking about this this space. Scott, can I, can I throw in a uh, uh, naive, uh, uh, xenophobic kind of way of, of thinking about, you know, race in Europe, just to just to go specific on, on that. And I know growing up in the U.S., Europe was all white people. I mean, that was, that was kind of that was kind of our our, our view. And 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 to and I'm thinking because I'm my pandemic task has been to kind of reread all those books that I didn't understand when I was, was younger. So I was reading Wretched, Wretched of the Earth, you know, Frantz Fanon. And, you know, and I'm realizing how much the whole idea of being colonized, you know, really as, a, as an American, you don't, you, you were, the, we were the colonizers eventually. So, so in the sense of understanding uh, the kind of hatred and the kind of relationship that develops, because in, in the U.S., and, and Scott, you and I talk about, about this a lot, there's a growing distinction between um, the descendants of North American slaves as opposed to, to immigrants. And so, you know, if, if I could be the, um, <laughs> the arbitrator of how to discuss these issues, I'd try to make that division, too. I mean, granted, 3 a.m., if you're black in Alabama, you get stopped. Nobody's going to ask if you're from Nigeria or but. But, they, but there are other issues about the advantages or not that you might have as an immigrant versus descendant of slave and, and the, the types of uh, uh, reparations that have been awarded. But, but I, I'm saying that I just want to throw this in, into the mix. That, you know, Scott, you and I were watching uh, that documentary on, on Jesse Owens. It was you know, a wonderful doc a couple of years back. And they interviewed a brother in the stands who, was, who, was in, who had been in the stands in the, in the 36 Olympics. And we both had the same reaction, huh? I didn't know there were black people in Germany <laughs> in, in 1936. So, so I think the complexity uh, PR that you put out there, from our standpoint, you know, and I've certainly come a long way since my not understanding colonization and, and sort of all the stuff in the past 25 years and to, and to write a book to kind of get to it that's, that's not global in a sense, in, in thinking about these issues, which is what I now always try and do. But I just, I just wanted to throw, throw some of that into, into the mix as well about how complicated it is. And forget getting beyond race. I mean, that, that gets even, even more, more complicated. But just the, you know, the idea that I write a book in black and white, and I'm thinking, well, that has nothing to do with the rest of the world 25 years ago, where, where now you know, I have a much greater understanding of that. You know, I, I think, Kenneth, um, that, that's, you're, you're right to, to remind us about those uh, different realities because there, there is, of course, uh, there are also communities, particularly in, in France and the UK, whose descendants were, were colonized and enslaved, right? Um, and, and it's always really interesting seeing uh, different communities through the lens of, of, of where you sit. Um, and I know, for example, Caribbeans in the US are also seen as sort of newer immigrants and slightly removed from 
um, from from the sort of the history of American slavery. But in fact, they're descendants. They, they are descendants of slaves, right? And so it gets a becomes a very complex picture. You know, it becomes about the sort of uh, independence, independence of the mind, independence of of, your, of the country that you're from. Uh, the way in which that independence is fought for, the way in which you see the world now. That's the other thing. You know, sometimes I think that um, the way in which we uh, construct struggles and the way in which we individually see our place in the world, uh, either uh, you could say either refers back to history or it doesn't, right? You either see yourself in the present and now um, and, and almost with a, your life is a clean slate or you have a history uh, which you're uh, emboldened to and also um, is, 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 is affecting your position in the world that we, that we live in. So really interesting reflections, and I, I think. And, and, and one of the things I see here is particularly um, in, in the UK is the black community in particular, um, particularly those from the Caribbean, but, but across the board, take a lot of inspiration from, from uh, African-Americans um, and understand actually that there's a shared culture um, and also are looking to achieve many of the things in many of the areas that, that black Americans have achieved in over here in the UK. And some of the patterns of achievement are actually remarkably similar. Um, if you look at it on the surface level, when you look at sport, uh, you look at music in particular, those are the cliched spaces, right? But um, nevertheless, um, they're interesting spaces to look at. You know, and, and I think that's a perfect segue to, to you know, in, in the States, the way that we often look at this issue uh, of discrimination in sports leadership is we start with the athletes, right? And we and we try to do this kind of math, you know, what what's the right percentage of leadership? How should it reflect the athletes, right? And so, you know, here we still are struggling mightily, particularly in American football, when I look across European football, I don't see really any coaches, head managers of color. So I wanted you to, to lean in a little bit on that, right? How do you all think about, you know, whether there should be some kind of proportionality with athletes? Where do you all start? And then tell us about those leadership positions and, and where people of color fit in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that what we have is uh, certainly in the Premier League in England, and uh, in some individual clubs uh, in France, for example, um, and, and in Italy increasingly, you, you see an interna internationalization of ownership. Um, and uh, there's a lot of Americans um, who are in the Premier League as owners uh, or co-owners, and there's an increasing number in, in, in the Italian league, in Serie A. Um, and you, you sort of look for for those people to be uh, the sort of agents of change, to be sort of proponents of change, right? Um, because of the way in which we see American sports as um, sort of less segregated and offering more opportunities for people of color than, 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 than in Europe. Um, but that has been happening. That hasn't been happening at all. Um, and, and I think the picture is very stark, really. The data that we collect shows us that um, at very best, um, in, a, in, a, in, in the Premier League, for example, um, right now we have one black coach, um, Patrick Vieira, right? Um, and um, sometimes we can go up to three. So, so what's that? That's one and a half percent, um, three out of 20. 
Um, that's, um, that's, so, better sorry, that's, that's better than the National Football League. That's not bad. Come on. <laughs> but, but, but if you look at really the opportunities in, um, available to people across 92 clubs in England, uh, you, you never re- we never really have reached more than seven, seven out of 92 as head coaches. Um, and and I, I think the issue is that, well, the issues are, uh, are much the same as in the US, right? Um, people just don't see black athletes, um, they don't envisage them within those top leadership roles. The owners are not prepared to hand them what we call the transfer kitty, the money to spend on players, the, the 50, 60, 100 million pounds uh, a year in some clubs that they have to spend. Um, and there's a lot of work being got being undertaken now that you guys have already been through, you know, looking at the the pipelines of talent, um, getting people qualified for coaching jobs, looking to see where the blockages are. We we are here now in in England, um, looking at implementing the Rooney Rule, but on a voluntary basis, strictly voluntary. Clubs can sign up to it uh, and recruit people, uh, give them an opportunity through through interviews, but as long as it remains. Um, voluntary and it's not part of the regulation we don't expect that to really significantly change the picture and it's the same you know in in top level administration the same absence is there Um, uh, and across the board really and even where we have um, internationally owned clubs um, we don't have a a club owned by an African owner in the Premier League but we do have um, uh, Middle Eastern owners um, we, we do have owners from, from other parts of the world and it doesn't significantly change. The only place I've seen that change is at QPR where um, the great Les Ferdinand, who was an England striker, is the director of coaching. Um, I guess that would be the general manager position within American sports. And he, he's clear, he was appointed because the, the owner was a person of colour. The owner was an Indian Malaysian guy who just asked him one day, well, how come you haven't got a role? How come you haven't got a job? Uh, and then elevated him to that director of, uh, of coaching role. Um, and so it's, it's a very stark picture. It's, it's a very grim picture. Um, and in many ways, the debate that we have, um, people are not really confronting the issues. They're not confronting the, 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 the stereotyping, the labeling, the prejudice that underlines the, deci- the appointment decisions. Uh, so we're sort of tinkering around the edges a little bit. And for some people, the Rooney rule in a, in a non-mandatory way is also part of the tinkering, right? And I don't know how long we have to sort of um, play uh, this facade uh, that we're trying to do something, um, but it's being done, you know, half-heartedly until we really have a realisation that, that things are, are reaching a critical point. And that critical point will come when the players organise themselves a bit more tightly and when they begin to demand to work with more black coaches. It's, I think there's, we realise now that that's the dynamic that will really create the change. External regulation, that's not on the cards. There's no British government that's going to do that. There's no European government that's going to interfere in that way in sport, unfortunately. Well, I, I think that's, you know, you, you really have covered a lot of territory for us and great stuff. I mean, the... The idea that American owners would be agents of change <laughs> for us, we go, you know, we, we, we struggle with this. That's one of, you know, Ken's main points is, you know, thinking about owners and, and us knowing that ownership is really about inheritance, right? It is about these vestiges, um, you know, of, of you know, really thinking of how whites have owned things and continue to own things. We, 
we talk about who would be in a position to own here. And so I'll let Kim weigh in. And then I, I want to get back to the idea of athletes and where we think change can be made. Go ahead, Kim. Well, I just want to throw in, um, and the ownership issues is, 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 uh, fits with this. I am, and I've said this a couple of times out loud, I am just about done with the Rooney rule. So it's, it is it's so ironic that uh, you look to, to institute it. I have said, um, maybe private, this maybe first public time, that the Rooney rule has become like the tax code for owners here. How do I maneuver this to my benefit? And I want to pay as little tax as possible. So let me see how I can do this and not commit a violation. And, and I think what we, we've provided over the past you know, two decades now is an instrument of focus that detracts from the real issue. And I think energy should be more just kind of straight on prosecution without rule. Did you seek to hire and, and hire the most diverse people possible? Just did you do it right or not? <laughs> and not have a, a rule in place to, to do. So, so, I, so I, I put that out there because there was, you know, and, and maybe it is, the Rooney rules, maybe, maybe it's a five-year thing, you know, to, to jumpstart. Uh, and then you know you're going to move on to something else because uh, the, the Rooney rule has, has, you know, kind of old saying, has jumped the shark in the U.S. in terms of, of its, its effectiveness. And now the struggle is, okay, what, what do we do? And what, what we do is, 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 is monitor and prosecute you if you don't do the, the, the right thing with whatever powers you have as, as league leaders. And, but that gets to the player issue too, that more of that can happen if you have the support of the players, you know, baseball strike just ends. Major League Baseball players got a lot more than anticipated because the league recognized they were serious. Um, but that's that's what I think about. You know, I, I hadn't really. I've been waiting for the Rooney Rule in uh, in the Premier League, and now here as, as you're getting more and more traction, I'm like, uh, maybe 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 it was maybe we should stop you on that before before you find out. Uh, what the real end to the story can be is you end up with the same number or lesser number of head coaches than you had when you began. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I see that criticism and it's already um, uh, part and parcel of, of the debate here. The, the one thing I would say in its favor is for us here, we, we, we spent too long debating it and not implementing it. That's the problem, right? Um, yeah. We've been debating the Rooney rule. I mean, I, I remember once going to a meeting in Vienna where uh, the late um, uh, Mr. Rooney himself, um, I think he was just about to be appointed um, the U.S. ambassador to Ireland, Dan Rooney, um, or he just left that role. Um, and I met him at an OECD meeting um, there. And, and of course, while he was alive, he was very passionate. His kids seemed to be passionate about it. And it seemed to have some leverage and some weight then. But the way in which I see it is it's, mobilize people to think about mechanisms of recruitment that, that can uh, give opportunity, right? And it's clear that Rooney Rule itself won't do that. Um, you have to have a whole kind of structure and accountability process around it. You have to have a whole organization working towards the goals of improving diversity at, across the board. Um, but it's been useful in the debate here to, to, to throw out to people because people then respond uh, very, very 
uh, interestingly. They either like, hey, let's look at that. If it's something that can make a difference and others just run away from it because it seems um, too much like a, a quota or it seems too much like positive action that they just don't want to go close to. But So it's an interesting um, device uh, in, in, in those terms. But I think you're right. Most people now accept that in, in and of itself in sport, it's not going to work. And, and it may also be that it's working in other areas of life, right? I hear that American tech companies, some local authorities and others are using it and it's working well for them because they've done other things around them. But if just to plonk it down and say, this is going to be our solution. I, I agree with you. It's not going to work. No, no, and, and that's, that's absolutely right. And, and, and not, not to be sacrilegious on, on, on the concept, but I, th- I think you're right. The, the coalition of ideas, the, the Rooney Rule is a part of ideas, is, is, a, is a path. And maybe our foreshadowing helps over there in terms of, okay, we got to make sure we got a bundle going and not just put, put all our, our eggs into the, into the Rooney Rule basket. I mean, the, the other thing to, to talk about on that, on that is that on, on gender, for example, um, in countries like uh, the UK, France, and Germany, uh, every, com- every company that's listed in, in the top 50 or 100 of the stock exchange now are, re- are required to report back on the number of women that they have in the board, right, at the, at the top level. And increasingly, there are countries setting targets for people. Um, that, that, those targets, in, in France, for example, they've just done something they've done on gender they would never, ever do on race, which is to say that every sports organization needs to have a 50-50 gender split in terms of the, at, at the board level, right? Um, we wouldn't do that here. The Germans wouldn't do that, but the French have. But only on gender. They would never do it on race. Um, and so those are the kind of interesting things happening around sport while we still ponder some very basic measures, you know. Yeah. This episode of the Global Sport Matters podcast is brought to you by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment. You have that something extra, the star quality, the intangibles that put you on top of your game, your artistry. You flourish in fiercely competitive industries. You already have the vision, but you may need the plan. Your distinct needs inspired the creation of Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment, a division of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management dedicated to serving the unique and sophisticated needs of professional athletes and entertainers. We speak your language, we understand your business, and can help you achieve your goals. Visit ms.com slash GSE to learn more. And and as we we get moving towards wrapping up, I wanted to to get back to, you know, PR, you, last year, there was a social media boycott. And part of Ken's move in his book was, you know, maybe athletes, this this is the time for athletes to rise again, right? So in some ways, back to the 68, 60s, when athletes rose and they were able to create leverage, whether that's thinking of the 68 Olympic protests and all of the folks involved there, even, you know, including non-Americans, uh, uh, Peter Norman and so on, but the leverage and the pressure that athletes can do. And we've been seeing that rise here in the States, of course. So talk to us a little bit about your call for athletes and what you see about see that athletes can do. And maybe, you know, the your kind of three-point plan in terms of how athletes can be effective or what's needed to be more effective. Well, you know, in, in the last two years, since uh, the death of George Floyd, we've seen uh, black athletes really begin to use their platform in a way that very few have used before. You know, if I look at the Premier League, we've had a pattern where uh, athletes got to the age of 28, 29, so two or three years off retirement, 
and then they would become more more conscious. They would then start to talk about race and exclusion. Uh, we've had one or two athletes like uh, uh, Raheem Sterling who, who talked about this, you know, the, the the disparity in treatment in the media of young black footballers versus young white footballers. And he gave this amazing example of a young black footballer who bought his mama house, um, and it was seen as the guy showing off his money. And then a young white footballer in the same team who'd done that, it was seen as a, you know, the guy's looking after his mom. It's a sweet move. So, you know, it's very, very clear. It was an amazing um, uh, move by Raheem to do that. But since the death of George Floyd, there's been a, a radicalization of those guys. So they now are talking far more freely. They're, they're far more um, upfront about the racial abuse they might face from crowds, which is a feature of European football. They're far more upfront in demanding change in a whole range of different areas. Uh, the European Championships last year, the, the finals were played in London. Uh, and there were British ministers who disagreed with the idea of the, the, the football version of taking the knee, the soccer version of that, right, that we do in the Premier League, which is very different to actually what Colin Kaepernick was doing, but nevertheless, symbolically, it's a move forward. So we had government ministers who saying, we don't know why they do that. Football and sport should be removed from politics. And then we had players calling them out for doing that, right, because there was a social media backlash against three black players who missed... Uh, who were amongst those that were missed the penalties in the European final, uh, England against Italy. Um, and so it, it, we've seen players um, become more politicised, more active, more prepared to stick their necks out. Um, we still are, 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 are don't, not sure we're in the same position. We, you know, we still don't have players who, who will be as forthright as some of the, the sort of NBA uh, uh, veterans that we see, we certainly don't have a Colin Kaepernick, right? I mean, the idea of taking the knee whilst you're playing, while for your country, say, and the national anthem is playing, just wouldn't happen. The players just don't, they're just not there, don't have the bravery for it. Um, and so I, I think for us, um, we need to see a development of that. Many players are going out, they're getting educated as well. Many of them are now beginning to support social causes that reflect their experiences in their life. Many of them are making uh, are, are moving towards sort of a structural analysis, the flaws in the in the in the European sporting system. Um, the, that is really interesting to see, and they really are, and you know, a new force within our sporting landscape. And there is now, I I've, I I sort of uh, join conferences sometimes on sponsorship, and one of the things now, or, or other forms of mainstream administration, right? What people are saying around football, and people are now saying. Expect athletes to be activists. Expect them to use their platforms on social media to be saying things that are going to make you feel uncomfortable. So how do you use that? How do you work around that? Um, so it's really prompting an interesting debate, sometimes a regressive debate, um, but, it's, but it's refreshing to see. And we haven't ever seen that before, I have to say. Um, and, and, and I, I, th I think that um, social media has a large part to play in it. Of course, uh, the guys have platforms. There's also forms of abuse on social media. And through the blackout, they're sending a message, mostly to Facebook, which owns Instagram and to Twitter, that we're not going to take this anymore. And that has led now to government legislation uh, in prohibiting um, the sort of social, abu social media abuse that is allowed and, and punishments, sanctions, financial sanctions, for the social media companies if they don't remove it within a certain period of time. That sort of regulation is very different to what you see in the US, but the Germans do it. We're doing it, seeing in the UK and in other European countries now. But I, I think 
we are going to see, I agree with Ken, we're going to see further change when the athletes really step up um, and, and, and move on to pushing agendas that are, make feel, people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and Ken, you know, I wanted to give you a, a, another, another final word before I wrap us up. No, it's, it's, you know, I guess 25 years later, it's, it's this, this whole conversation amplifies the importance of thinking about this globally, which, uh, you know, I'm always a self-critic. I mean, I was, you know, focused on black versus white in the United States, uh, you know, 25 years ago. So it's, it, it's all, as we can hear, it's all intertwined. I mean, it's, it's, it's as the ideas flow back and forth, uh, the idea of a coordination, I mean, imagine, Kaepernick coordinating with you know some of the great players around the world, the broader impact that could have had or could have in the future. So that that's what this has me reflecting on is, is possibility. And and you know we we thank you we thank you PR for for joining us. Always been a great friend. I remember before the pandemic meeting with you in in London, and there you were saying you know we don't have anybody who would step up. And so it's encouraging to hear and see, of course. You know, the different folks who are who are stepping up and, and are, are speaking about their abuses. Right. You know, any Luca. I mean, we've, we've you've got other examples going on on the women's side as well. And I think that's really, really uh, encouraging for us. And it speaks to when people talk about this gradualism and this idea that if you just wait, you know, if we're patient as opposed to really insisting on things. You know, I, I've been more and more saying that this is not about gradualism, right? That you need leverage and you need these moments that are burst. And what they do is they change the whole landscape. And it sounds like you all are experiencing this burst. There's definitely areas where you all are ahead of us when we're talking about LGBT+. You all are clearly ahead of us. And I think one of the things that you've, you, were, you were discussing or alluding to in the Rooney Rule where it's got to be a constellation and it's got to be a group of things happening, your organization in particular, to gather the data. We don't gather data about on racial abuses in sport. We're not, we don't have that kind of openness with organizations reporting back, as you talked about in some places in Europe. I think that must be so central. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of you all's work at FairNet and, and how that is helping to work on this anti-discrimination effort globally. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Scott. I, I think increasingly um, what we're doing, uh, we also realize that has more relevance than, than just in Europe because we're, we're seeing a similar picture to Europe in Latin America, in, in soccer in Latin America. Uh, we see, you know, developing countries where soccer is going to be a big thing in the future because, um, you know, it's been, it's been inherited uh, to them by the British or they're getting involved in, in global competitions like the World Cup. Um, but what we do is to, to present data on incidents of, of racial abuse in particular, because that's the biggest form of abuse inside stadiums, um, and try to push the governing bodies to take regulatory action, because there is a, a process in place where a team or a national team, a club team or a national team can be prosecuted for that and face sporting sanctions. So that's the focus there. And then we also collect data on, on, on minorities and women within leadership positions. We're just finishing now uh, our second set of, of consecutive data uh, that we'll be publishing this spring. And, you know, sometimes it's a bit grim because, you know, highlighting some of the things that are being said to people of colour 
um, across European football is is a tough thing to watch and look and then see the inaction. Uh, sometimes looking at this data um, is is tough because you see that it's the same year after year after year and nobody's really serious about changing it. But but that's what we've got to do. We've got to confront the realities, I think. Um, and then on the other side, you know, we have a huge network of grassroots organisations who are using football as a means of change in their communities, particularly when it comes to, um, you know, self-empowerment, uh, empowerment on the basis of race or gender uh, or their sexual orientation. And that's something we're really proud of, having built a very large movement over the, the last 10 years or so. Um, and it's, it's insights from that, actually, that, that allow us to con- try to connect things globally because, you know, you, in, in the US, of course, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement was very powerful. Um, it was picked up in, in some Western European capitals. But I've seen, you know, demonstrations in India led by untouchables, by the Dalit community, who, who have a... Um, I mean, I know, I know now some of the debate about the situation of African-Americans also focuses uh, and, and draws parallels with the caste system, right? The Dalits in, in India have, have, have been at the bottom of the pile for centuries. So they're now picking up you know, and taking inspiration from the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, the need to be more visible on the streets, the need to highlight deaths and, and community uh, uh, hurts and, 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 you know, the impact on the community that it has, the, the forceful, devastating impact that, that this sort of uh, discrimination and racism has on communities and being more upfront about that. So that's, it's really interesting when you see the global picture of repressed peoples coming up, challenging the, the oppression and, and putting forward positive and interesting solutions and creative solutions. Well, thank you very much for spending some time with us. It's, it's again, always great to, to see you and be in conversation with you to really help us to understand this broader global impact. It's wonderful to hear and learn about how this is spreading, right? And that there's a global culture of act- activism you know, that hopefully will continue to push us and and get us to some greater change. So we thank you again, Pierre Perouar of the Fairnet in the UK for, for joining with us. And we encourage everyone to go back to our first episode of Revisiting in Black and White with Ilham Hanavald from uh, Stellenbosch University. And thank you from Global Sport Matters. Thanks, Scott. This show is brought to you by Global Sport Matters. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. This episode was produced by me, Kendall Jones, manager of events and programs, and big thanks to sound designer and editor, Sam Esparza and Big U Music. Our marketing and communications manager is Crystal Valencia. Our digital communications specialist is Brendan Clean, and our marketing and event assistants are Natalie Skegan, Aiden Corrales, and Kate Nelson. Stay up to date with the Global Sport Matters team by following us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter by clicking on the envelope icon at globalsportmatters.com. <laughs>